Vodka. 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 Vodka Hey everyone, it's Amber Love from AmberUnmasked.com and you are listening to Vodka O'Clock. What you're about to hear is a special episode that was recorded at the New Jersey Comic Expo in Edison that took place November 21st and 22nd. So this panel I moderated on the 21st. It was part of the Creators Lab track that they had for programming. It was called Make Comics Inking, and it features Sean Martinborough and Scott Hanna, two incredibly amazing, talented creators who have been in the business for many, many years. Scott is uh, a teacher also, so he is quite used to public speaking. Sean was a wonderful public speaker, and he actually has uh, basically the textbook on inking in a way. He, he has a, it's not inking overall, but it's very specifically how to draw noir comics. So uh, there, what was so funny about moderating this panel was that I had my notebook filled with questions and things that I wanted to um, use as bullet points, and I did not use a single thing in my notes. It just took off naturally, very organically. Um, so there actually, if you, if, you know, obviously if you're listening to this in the car, I'm sorry, but go back and check out the show notes because uh, Sean brought a slideshow with him of his work so you can um and scott was actually displaying pages that he's done from all different kinds of pencilers very different styles so um if you've never seen their work before check it out the detail in some of sean's pages i mean uh, scott's pages were just unbelievable but uh for sure if you like noir things check out sean's work and uh, I think that this show, the New Jersey Comic Expo, is the first time they had it. It's run by the same people who run the Long Beach Con in California, which I had heard good things about. So I was curious. Now, I did have some problems with the show, but I will make a separate post about that, um, addressing what I liked and what I think needs improvement. But as far as programming goes, I thought having this Creators Lab track was really excellent. Um, they had you know, uh, penciling, inking, writing, they had spotlight uh, sessions on, you know, single creators, like um, they would have uh, Charles Wilson at one, Tom Rainey at one, Dennis Calero. And um, I thought that overall, like as far as the making comics information went, that it was pretty cool. Um, so let me know what you think of my moderating skills because like I said um, notes were completely worthless on this one and don't forget that you can uh, go to patreon.com slash to sponsor the show on the website and meanwhile this is the end of the National Novel Writing Month and I'm sure I still have a ways to go to actually finish my novel um, because uh, 50,000 words is not long enough it needs to be really at 80 but the challenge for 50,000 words in a month is a whole lot of fun so uh, go check out my uh, NaNoWriMo posts at AmberOnMass.com because I've been tracking my like a diary of my word count each day and what I went through and the days that it was easy and the days that it was really really hard so uh, please go check that out and let me know what you think follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber thanks for listening as, as a fellow artist, I'm just like, the amount of detail he has on these pages, but, um, um go on, I'm sorry. So, Sean, take it over. Yeah. Uh, what, are, what are some of your favorite things? Because I, I know that you've done Punisher and Luke Cage. Yeah, um, yeah, I've worked for Marvel and DC over the years. I'm currently working with Robert Kirkman, the creator of The Walking Dead Now, on a series called Beef of Thieves, which I am penciling and inking myself. Um, um, and so, some of the work that we're showing is some, some of my artwork over the years, uh, from my art book, How to Draw Noir Comics. And I basically just sort of take people into how I approach dark and light, using line and shadow to create depth and drama. And uh, I, I'm sure, like Scott, I'm still old school. I still work with a quill, quill pen and ink, sharpie, technical pen, paintbrush, whatever, to achieve my results. Yes, to me, it doesn't even matter what tool you use as, use it, as well as you use it properly. To yes. achieve The end result is what matters. So understanding. That's why I, I usually recommend for all pencilers that learn how to ink because that's what's going to show up on the printed page. 
uh, and whether you're working with another inker or doing it all yourself, like inking is one of the easiest ways to screw up your artwork if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So you have to, and there are certain things about inking that um, can bring out uh, the life in art better than any other medium. So I think texture is one of those areas where inking shines, that you can do more with texture in ink than you can in pencil or than you can in color. Same thing with shadows. If you're gonna do shadows, do it in black. It works, it's solid, it draws the eye, it draws the attention. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally uh, echo what Scott's saying. The thing, it's interesting because I think a lot of, there was a running joke in, in movies a long time ago in, in one of those um, Kevin Smith films, which is where they got into the fight on tracers. <laughs> tracers, inkers are tracers. And I'm sure all inkers are like, oh my God, that was such a great scene because lay people think that inkers are just tracers. Right. You know, and a lot of pencilers that don't know any better think that as well. Exactly. They don't realize that inkers are basically elevating, or good inkers elevate the pencils to a whole other level. And you know, and so a lot of times with comic book companies would try to be cheap or cut corners, they would do this process where they would darken someone's pencils. You know, and we'll just skip that inking phase. We'll just darken someone's pencils and just color that. And I think there are, there are a handful of artists that, that can get away with that because pencils are so well, And even that, it required the pencilers to be that much cleaner yeah. and spend longer on their actual work to make it photo ready. Exactly. So the, they actually spent more time and energy. It's like, why didn't you just ink it? Would have been sharper and cleaner. And, and, it, I, yeah. uh, and it just makes me cringe when I see pencilers sort of follow that, that lead of, well, like if I get offered a book, I'm just going to have them darken my pencil so they can get both you know, the checks and all the money because you know, you're paying the pencil and the inker separately, and they're like, oh, I'll just darken my pencils. And I'm like, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Get yourself a good inker, because you know, don't, you're shortchanging your work by trying to simply darken your pencils, because the inker brings so much more to your pencils in terms of like just punch and depth and detail and variance. You know, my whole thing whenever I ink my own work is, and I, I, whenever I see other um, artists and inkers, I'm looking at the crispness of the pencil line. And I was just geeking out on Scott's work here. I'm like, it looks like Scott went in there with like a, like, I'm like, how did you get that razor thin line to contrast with the thick line? You know, which is, which is what makes, which gives the artwork depth. Yeah. I'm glad that you guys brought that up because I've actually um, heard more than one penciler say that they don't want anchors because they're afraid of losing detail. And when you guys come up here and take a look at Scott's pages, there is so much detail down to the fine point, uh, like Sean was saying, it's like a, a one point brush or one, you know, one hair brush or two hair brush. And it, um, when you're using pens, it's obviously measured in, in millimeters. But um, to hear fine artists who think that they're going to somehow lose something in a facial expression, or in you know in fabric and it, first of all when you're talking about shadows alone you, you know I know you guys are experts on noir comics so shadows are these big pools of black ink that you want to see you want your you know your criminals in an alleyway and you want nothing but stark light showing up against that you can't get that with a pencil you're right you know what's funny though because like I, I can see what the artists what some artists can say when just going back to your little point about artists being afraid of inkers because they think that the inkers will degrade their work. And if you get a bad inker, that can totally happen. Absolutely. Because I, I, when I was on Detective Comics, you know, I, I really don't like the way that stuff looks because to me, I just was never happy with my inker. And well, I, I actually became a professional inker because I had somebody else ink me badly <laughs> and I hated it. And it was like, I want the final say. I want to get what's on the printed page. And if an inker does not know how to draw, Oh, absolutely. If they don't know yeah. how to draw. They will. They don't. They don't know what to emphasize, and they will weaken the drawing. Right. The biggest misconception is uh, I was mentioning this actually at my table earlier that a lot some inkers or some people say, "Oh, I'll become an inker because I don't draw well enough to be a penciler." <laughs> and if that's the case, you should never be an inker because the way I look at inking, and obviously I'm prejudiced, but I look at inking as the specialty on top of all the basic drawing skills. So you have to know how to draw really well first, then you have to know how to do texture, depth, and all the subtle things 
because to me, inking is the expertise of line where every line means something and it's there for a purpose. In penciling, you can sketch stuff out. You're still constructing, you're telling the story, but in inking, you're finessing. And you can't finesse if you don't know how to draw. You can't do a better job. You can't make a penciler look better if you don't know how to draw well. Yep. It's simple. And especially if you're working with a penciler that uses uh, very few lines. Because then, the, then, then your line work is even more important. You know, like if you look at these pages that Scott has, there's a ton of lines here. So there are ways that, there are places that you can go really wrong, but still possibly get away with it. But also, I mean, there's still areas of large black and solids against each other. So, uh, and actually, one of the things I do as an inker is because I was disrespected by another inker, that's why I became an inker, I tried to respect all my pencilers and treat them with the same respect I wish I had gotten. So I literally, every time I work with a new artist, I change my style to match their work. So actually, here's some examples. Yeah, I'm gonna hold, let me hold right. up some of these. So, right, so, so this is me inking over John Romita Jr. Um, wait, I'm just going totally blank on the name of this artist now, but I was inking him on Guardians of the Galaxy. This is me inking over me. This is me inking over another penciler. This is me inking over Finch. That's, that's Finch too. But each one of these, I actually try to adjust my style. So I don't want this artist to look like this artist because they're different pencilers. They shouldn't look the same. Some inkers don't care. They, they'll ink everybody the same way. I'm of a, an old school philosophy where I want to respect the pencil artist, whether it be myself or somebody else, I want to adjust. You got a question? Do you think um, it's a particular tool given to a, to a particular style. If you want a more illustrated style, do you literally have to use a brush, in your opinion? Or do you think you can get away with using pens and still have like a brushwork kind of a look? To me, the important part is what ends up on the page, not the tool you use to get to that point. So whether you're digital inking, whether you're inking with magic markers, whether you're inking with brushes or quills, it's how you apply that. Like I'm, I actually mix almost 50-50. I use brush and pen, uh, to, but in different proportions depending on the artists I work with. Like if I'm doing lots of black areas, I'm gonna do it with brush because it goes faster, it fills in more space. And if I'm doing hair, I love doing it with brush because it gives that fluid hair feeling. But if I'm doing short stubbly hair, I'm not gonna do it with a brush because it'll soften it. It won't look sharp and crisp. Uh, I was just talking with uh, Walter Simonson. When I inked him, I did a lot of his work with pen because he has a very hard edged angular style. I didn't wanna soften it with too much brush work. So I adjust my tools to achieve the ends I desire. So if I want to go more illustrative, but illustrative is just a term because, you know, I can do lots and lots of cross, like, uh, I don't know if there's a good example, but one of my, like this piece, I'm dealing with lots and lots of little textures and, and details. Half of this is brush, half of this is pen. I can use either tool to determine what I want to achieve with it. You know, it's just, Really, the the result is what matters. I've used sticks. I've used markers. I've used I've used lettering pens at times because I want a square nib. Uh, right now, I'm using like a square tip brush to get some of my dry brush effects. I'll use anything I want to, as long as it ends up looking how I want it to look. Yeah, I, I probably would echo that. If you look at some of the pages of, of of my work, like it's really a matter of whatever can give me the greatest variety of line. So like, yeah, I'll, I'll go from using like a Micron, whatever pen, and I, I couldn't even tell you the names of the pens that I use. I literally just, go, the same I just go to the art store and say, can I, I, let me look at that line, let me look at that line, um, and, and brushes. I could, I mean, I, I, I couldn't even tell you what brush I use. And sometimes like they kind of split everyone. Like that gets very uh, yeah, annoying. Absolutely. But you know, and so, so it's really whatever can give me of way a great the greatest variety. Sometimes I use my fingers. Sometimes just kind of maybe like smudge something very very rarely, or like a toothbrush occasionally. You know, to like kind of get that spritz. But whatever you can use to give you a, a great variety of, of different line is what I respond to when I read a, 
I'll look at a piece of artwork. And actually, uh, what you just said about the variety of wine is one of the keys about what makes inking very important. What, it actually makes me totally cringe when I see pencilers who try to ink themselves and they do everything with what we call a dead line. And a dead line is like a magic marker line where the line weight's the same all the way across. And when you start to, to me, one of the, the goals of black and white artwork in gen, I don't care whether it's ink or pencil, is that we're trying to represent three-dimensional forms on two-dimensional pieces of paper. And every time you deaden your line, you're flattening all your form. And when you have a live line, a vibrant line, a variable line, you can, you can give form and light and substance to uh, something way more than if it's just a flat, dead, like, you know, even uh, one of the dangers a lot of people have when they're using digital is that they, they make it too clean, too perfect. They don't have the, the energy of mistakes and, and accidents and just playing. Um, and like they're so, it's like, wow, I can't clean up any mistakes. It's like in inking, sometimes mistakes are gold. They're like, or, you know, like oh darn, I made it, let's put a shadow there. You know? <laughs> it's like, and it, turns in, it can turn into a really happy, cool accident. And, and that's, that's something you don't want to throw away as an artist. You want to embrace that and, and take advantage of that. Yeah. What trends have you guys seen? Um, start to happen. We were talking outside the panel about how uh, digital obviously has had an impact and you can see colors better in particular so it's going to be true that you can also see the fine details of inking better but what trends as far as genres are concerned have been happening in the marketplace because um, I pay more attention to things like kids book and noir books just because those are the things that I like and um, you know but from an insider perspective is, is there something that you've noticed um, really have a bigger influence these days? In terms of just like line? In, in terms of the, the just genre of comics where we are now. Yeah, I, I think there's actually way more diversity than we've had in ages. Um, but it, I see, I, it's weird because like I work, right now I'm working with like five different pencilers with five different styles. and. So I can't say any one of them is current or marketable or whatever, but some of them are like very heavily manga influence and anime influence with the big eyes and very clean lines, very animated look without a lot of shadows. And then other guys like Finch is all about shadows and texture and I'm working with Lee Weeks also is all about shadows. And as an inker, I personally love shadows. You know, to me, if you, if you throw out the blacks, you're throwing out half of your palette, you know, I mean, could, you know, yeah, these are, would be great drawings without the blacks, but when you throw in the blacks, this is probably going to be a good example, right? Mm -hmm. So as soon as you start throwing in the blacks, it gives it that weight, that substance, that, that form, and you can do that in color, and color, a good colorist will enhance that stuff, but I really love shadows, and so to me, my favorite art styles, and, and, we work in a black and I mean, comics is essentially a black and white medium with color added. Um, no matter how advanced color gets, actually, my, my biggest drawback, or the thing I don't like about a lot of colorist moderns <laughs> is that they keep wanting to do effects all over the place and yeah. say, oh wait, I'll, I'll, I'll fade out the, the black lines and I'll fa fade out this, I'll do a glow here and I'll do a glow here. And it's like, in the black and white, we usually think in terms of depth yeah. and texture, and then the colorists are like, I'll ignore all that and cover it all up. It's like, no. I'm constantly, I'm, on Thief of Thieves, the series that I do, like, I'm constantly having to rein in my colorists from doing effects. You know, number one, because it's like, all right, like, like Scott said, you don't need to do, you don't need to, to use as much because I'm separating the foreground from the middle ground, the background exactly. for you. Yeah. Also, though, for me, I'm just like, well, you don't want to be so obvious with what you're doing. You know, if you just put a filter in the background to kind of knock it out, but everyone knows you just use a filter. Right. You know, you have to sort of put little things on top and sort of cover up your tracks so it's not so obvious how you're applying things. Um, I think one of the interesting things that I find is, um, in terms of a trend, is that there are a lot of foreign artists working in comics Absolutely, yes. From South America and Asia, and they have a whole different sensibility in terms of approaching art from a draftsman 
point of view, and which I really respond to. I, I really respect and, and I love. And it's always great when you can kind of look at someone who you can tell their influence is not just simply people in the comic industry. They're looking at like you know artists and you know from from you know illustration or fine art or what have you, and it's a whole different sensibility to their work. And when I um, first got my start in comics, I got my first work working for Marvel as a painter. This is when Alex Ross had sort of just sort of popped on the scene, and they were just you know throwing people to, to do painted books. And so I had done a few painted projects for Marvel, and then. By chance, I knew some of the guys at this company called Milestone, and Milestone was starting up a series called Static, and they had an artist on there named John Paul Leon. And John Paul, and, and he was working with Steve Mitchell, Steve Mitchell, whatever, they wanted to change out Steve Mitchell, and they said, Sean, would you like to ink John Paul? And so I said, sure, fun. And it was just fun, because you know, I, and I loved his stuff, and the two, of us, the two of us worked together for years, and I think we really made each other better, because John is a phenomenal, draftsman, and whenever I would get his pages, he would have such great distinction between thick lines and thin lines, and then I would just go in there and just do my thing with the inking, and I think it really made us both better artists working together, and then I said, okay, I want to get back into drawing more, and so I started inking myself after I was working on Detective Comics, and I was paired with an inker who I felt was <laughs> really just not, I mean, it just, you know, when you put so much work into drawing something, then you get the ink back, and it just looks like the person just sort of said, whatever. Or they just don't understand form, you know. It's just, it just, it's a bummer. It really made me want to ink my own work to have that kind of control. And I think one of the great things about being a penciler and an inker is that sometimes you can spend a long time drawing a face, like a long time, and then you'll then you'll just say, "My God, that would just look better as a complete silhouette." And you just go over all of your detail, and that's the cool thing. I mean, you know, it takes you a while to sort of get used to just sort of saying, "Screw it." But then many times I'm like, that that image just works so much better. You just less is more. And I think I'm really influenced by someone like like Alex Toth is one of my main influences. Oh, yeah. Because he 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 once drew he once wrote something in one of his books that was so that I always remember where he said, only draw what you have to. And I was like, that's really interesting because a lot of times when you use ink and you put things into shadow and you suggest form rather than have every line spelled out. The human brain will fill in the details. Well, I, I love, like, Mignola for that. Reads, and, you know, he's a master storyteller, and he just uses... And, and you still get a total sense of texture and depth because he uses his black so well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's actually another example of he was inked badly and started <laughs> inking himself all the time. Yeah. Uh, David Mazzucchelli. David Mazzucchelli is another one. You know, it's like... But for me, as, as a professional inker, which is my primary, I occasionally do penciling, but I primarily do inking over other artists. Uh, one of the cool things about it is that partnership of when you do find a partnership that works, it's magic and you're making each other better and you're giving each other another set of eyes to look at it from a slightly different perspective. You're learning. You're getting new influences that you wouldn't have necessarily thought of by yourself. And... For me, like I, it's it's like I'm always in school, and in in most of the world, that sounds like a bad thing. In art, that's a fantastic thing because in art, you never stop learning. You want to keep, you know, when you're 80 years old, you still want to be learning new things in art, and so to keep learning new stuff for my entire career is fantastic. And I know I'm a much better artist now than I was 20 years ago. Hopefully every artist working is, but some get into a rut and sometimes some get into a pattern. And, and in comics, the real danger is getting repetitive, doing the same thing you did 20 other times or 30 other times or 200 other times. Um, like I've, I literally inked in the neighborhood of 20,000 pages of comic books. And... If you think about that, try to do 20,000 different drawings. Try to do, you know, do a face, do a wall, do a, a hand, do it 20,000 different ways, different times. Well, that's just pages. That's not that, even like well, six that's panels That's not even how page. many panels are on a page, yeah. So. How many people act out here are actually making comics or interested in making comics? Okay, <laughs> so, um, you know, you talk about uh, the relationships that you have with uh, the pencilers, and you both mentioned color artists as well. Um, I, I also think of some like iconic 
writer art teams like Brubaker and Phillips. And uh, what is communication like nowadays where you're not sitting in a bullpen necessarily and your team is not around you? So when you, as an inker, are getting the pages, where is, you know, what is your communication with the whole team like? Is it all just through an editor or are you going all the way back to like working with the writer and the colors? Well, I always, whenever humanly possible, I always make sure I get a script because I want to be connected to the story. The story is what we're telling, you know? So if you don't know whether it's nighttime or daytime, <laughs> that's really harmful for the end product. I don't know how to ink it if I don't know what's happening, who's in it, what's the time of day, you know, the time of year, all those things are important. Um, but because the script is usually done by the time it gets to me, I don't have a lot of back and forth with the writers. Uh, though there are some writers, like I, uh, I ran into Chris Claremont, and Chris was like, hey Scott, you know, who, what pencil would you like to work with? And, and I'm like, oh, I named it, and great, I'll make it happen. And like, and he actually wrote, and I, I've had some um, writers who specifically write for particular artists. So they get a, you know, one artist, and they know that they can write a certain way. And like, I worked with Bendis and Bagley for a long time on Ultimate Spider-Man and other projects. And you know, Bendis and Bagley were together for five years straight without any breaks. And so Bendis knew what he was gonna get and he knew that Mark would change things occasionally. And then Mark would know that I would change things occasionally if, if needed. And like one, this is a, a long story, but one time I was reading the script in Ultimate Spider-Man and there was a particular scene where Mary Jane had an aha moment with Flash Thompson. It was after Gwen Stacy died and she was in the in the script it said she kind of sort of figured it out said aha it's because you really liked her but she wasn't really sure that was in the script and in the drawings Mark Bagley kind of drew her with this kind of big grin saying aha you really liked her and I was like you know what the script she wasn't quite sure so all I did was in the inking I just did a little Unink basically one side of the mouth. I didn't ink it as a full smile. The other side I kept as the full smile. And usually, actually, if I'm making a major change, I always check it with my pencilers and I'll okay. And I'll sometimes even check it with my writers. But in this case, I forgot to do that. It was just like a, a momentary thing. And then, like a month or so later, when the book came out, I got this call from Bagley. Like, you changed my face. I'm like, what? What? What did I do? I, I thought he was going to scream at me and yell. He's like, it's brilliant. It's great. I love it. You know. But it's also because Mark and I had worked together for years, so we knew each other and we trusted each other and we encouraged each other and we pick on each other. You know, it's like if he's doing something wrong, I'll pick on it. If I'm doing something wrong, I expect him to pick on me because that's how you get better. I'm so happy to hear that, that you're getting so much respect as an inker. That's so I, awesome. That's a, I'm a rarity in the field. <laughs> I, so. I mean, that, that's that's really cool. I, I think that um, for me, like since I do both, um, you know, my work. I don't work in a bullpen. I just work at home in my studio. I have a very tough commute in the morning from my <laughs> to my art room. Um, but yeah, usually when I get a script, I'll, I'll read the script straight through, um, and then I'll do thumbnails. And that's pretty much where I do all of my storytelling figuring out. And so I'll revise thumbnails and then that's my blueprint for doing the final page. And then since I'm doing both, I, I really spend a lot of time typing the drawing, at least just getting the figures and the faces down. But I do I know that I'm gonna be doing a lot of heavy lifting with the inking. So, um, and I, I'm pretty respectful of the script. So the script to me is paramount. If Andy Diggle, who is writing um, D50s now, if he writes something, I'm really just trying to visualize to the best of my ability what Andy is writing on the page. I don't change anything unless it's something that you add panels or subtract panels. Um, very rarely because he's really good. So like, so he knows like you know it, it's there. Um, I, once in a blue moon, I might add a small inset panel to create an extra beat. But for the most part, I pretty much just draw what he does, what he what he says. There might be something occasionally with the storytelling where I might need to finesse something. But for the most part, I, I, re I really try to follow what he what he does. And fortunately, fortunately in my career, I've been happy to I've been fortunate to work with really good editors and really good writers that sort of give me leeway. And I've only been asked to change 
something maybe three times in over, over the course of maybe 32 issues of Beat the Thieves. And actually one time, and actually one th time it was a real, it was a character design that Robert Kirkman had asked me to change and, and I was going back and forth with him because I, I love to argue and I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? Because we were, we were kind of finishing up one story arc and going to the second one and the bad guy in, the, in, in story arc number one was like this, I designed him to be this, this sort of thin guy. And then the bad guy who was going to be popping up in the next story arc, I made him be, be this sort of husky, uh, David Batista-looking guy. And Kirk was like, yeah, you know, can we make him like a thin guy? And I'm like, no, we just made the previous guy a thin guy. I want contrast. And I had all these reasons. He was like, okay, listen, dude. There's someone who works at the, the AMC with The Walking Dead that what you design looks like that guy. So I think he's going to think that I'm trying to make fun of him. So can you change it? Like, so I changed. I made the change there. But... That, but really, I'm really fortunate not to ever really have to make any changes. Have either of you had the connection to Hollywood? Because I saw that like the losers flashed up there, and you've obviously both worked on Batman and Spider-Man. Have you um, actually done work for the studios? There's a firewall with artists, I think. Yeah, I, I've done work for video games. I've been actually offered at one a couple points in my career I was like offered to work, uh, Disney wanted me to work for them and I turned them down because I'd have to move down to, like, work out to California. Uh, there's actually a, a famous movie producer who lives near me in Pennsylvania and he said, oh Scott, do storyboards for me. And again, I, one of the freedoms that you have in comics beyond almost any other storytelling medium is that we don't have a lot of bosses over our shoulders. And we get to work at home by ourselves and be our own boss. And in Hollywood, that's not the case. You're kind of controlled by, and you've got like five different bosses looking over your shoulder, all giving you different advices that conflict, and you've got to make them all happy. And I love the, yeah, I may not make quite as much money as if I worked in Hollywood, but I have the freedom to do what I like to do and to do it the way I want it. Like, nobody's looking over my shoulder saying, oh, you gotta make Spider-Man look like this. It's like, no, I'll make it look how I want it to look like. And as the anchor, again, I actually have a lot of say in that end product. So when I was working on Spider-Man for 15 years almost continuously, I determined, I was kind of the, the model that everybody else set their Spider-Man on. I started doing the eyes a certain way, the symbol a certain way, the webbing a certain way, that everybody else started copying what I set as the standard. Even when I was on Batman, I was on Detective Comics for five years, I was the one who determined what the bat symbol looked like because wow. and it's gone through so I mean, many that, changes and and you know you, you know things like length of ear not as much so but there were there were certain things that the editors expected me to do certain things to keep it in line with how we wanted it and because I was what got printed not the penciler I had that final say, especially if a guest artist, like a guest penciler came in on my book, they were like, Scott, fix it, you know? Even, even actually, well, I, I, since I'm sitting next to Mark Bagley at the show, he and I worked together for the first time on Spider-Man Batman, and at the time, Bagley had been drawing Spider-Man already for years, he had never done Batman before. I was actually working on both characters for both companies at the same time, and my DC editors were like, Scott, you gotta make his Batman look more like Batman. You gotta make him chunkier. You gotta like give him a wider waist. Because Bagley at the time was doing very big, young, and big, skinny Spider-Man with very big heads. And so I kept like shrinking down Batman's head and widening his waist. Nowadays, Mark does every, he's done Batman now for years and stuff like that. But at that time, my editors had requirements of me as the anchor to give that finished look to the projects. Nowadays, that doesn't happen as much anymore, but I still have almost total freedom most of the time. So, actually, in regards to that noir, that whole Marvel series of noir was so different yeah. from like what was there. Were you guys in there at the very beginning of that, like to be able to do character concepts and, and things like that? I or? wish I had been, but I, unfortunately, I wasn't. Uh, I, you know, I don't remember because I, I did Luke Cage noir for right. Marvel. I'm not sure where that came in. Was that the beginning, middle, and or I don't remember. Where I didn't. Was. I didn't do Luke Cage. I, yeah. I know he started kind of. He's already been a street level hero, so right. yeah. I mean, bringing him down the street. I mean, to make it more hard boiled, I guess wasn't it wasn't much as much of a stretch as like Spider Man 
going into that. I think line. they just added trench coats and. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 no, wait a minute. No, the thing about Luke Cage is that they set Luke Cage in the Harlem Renaissance, so that oh, required yeah. a lot of reference. Like I did a lot of research in terms of like. Harlem in the 1920s oh, in terms of booming. Yeah, yeah, in terms of like the costume and the look. So that was a really complete reinterpretation of Cage. And the thing is, like Luke Cage, I put Luke Cage in a suit, which I am pretty, I'm pretty actually psyched to see that they release some clips of the upcoming Luke Cage uh, Netflix series, and he's in a suit. They have some shots of him in a suit. So I'm going to take a little credit for that because <laughs> you know he was in, before me. I didn't see him ever see him in a suit. Um, I was going to say though, is it? Is it well, because I mean, like my Luke Cage was in the 1920s, right. so this is a contemporary Cage. But I just the concept of him being in a suit when the showrunner um, Chio Fadari Coker or Coker or whatever he's when he was announced that he was going to be showrunning and producing the, sh the Luke Cage show, like I, I we're friends uh, and, and like in terms of we're acquaintances, and so I sent him an email saying, "Dude, congrats! You got to find a way to put him in the suit." And he was like, I, I got you. He's like, I got you. <laughs> so that's cool. Like that's instance, and going back to your question about Hollywood, like I've done storyboards for film for, for commercials and stuff like that, and that's fun. FIFA Thieves is gonna be a very interesting thing because FIFA Thieves is going to a network that's being adapted um, in, in the style of The Walking Dead and Outcast is gonna be a series on Cinem Cinemax and FIFA Thieves is going to a network. It's gonna be very interesting to see how they translate what I've done over the course of 31 issues of FIFA Thieves going to the TV show. Because for, the, for, for all intents and purposes, I pretty much have designed the look of that. But are they well, consulting you at all? Or? I, I haven't gotten the call yet. <laughs> I mean, like when you never know. Yeah, to his, to his credit, though, they're still in like the script writing phase right. in terms of like nailing down that pilot. But I know that when FIFA uh, Thieves first started, Kirkman had called me personally and said, hey, just give me a heads up that we're making a deal with AMC. Uh, so I, I'm thinking that hopefully when there's movement, I will be involved. But Excellent. we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, by the way, um, I I don't know if all anchors are like this, but I'm also a gigantic fan of film noir movies. So, and frequently, because I work, I have the luxury of working at home, I can watch movies while I work. And I normally prefer watching black and white movies because I want to pay attention to how the shadows work, how the light works, and things like that. So, and you know, a lot of times in, in actual film noir, the, the light sources don't make any sense, but they look really cool. And so, and in comics, uh, it, looking cool is more important than making sense, you know? So you still have to understand how light works and where it comes from and things like that, but it's also about playing with those shadows and, and like you were saying, how, you know, sometimes covering up stuff is way more important than just, you know, most artists spend decades learning how to draw that beautiful eye and mouth and stuff. And, but it takes an advanced artist to realize that covering that eye with a shadow is sometimes so much cooler and looks so much better yeah. that you, you're hiding what you, you know how to draw it and you drew it the right way, but sometimes disguising and making the readers participate in the viewership and the, the building of the forms is actually better for storytelling and better for the art. Yeah, definitely, definitely. To, for me, and I can really respect guys like 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 Finch or Ivan Reyes, 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 because they put everything in the kitchen sink. In the <laughs> Every single thing is spelled out. Whereas me, I like more of a suggestive, shadowy kind of kind of approach uh, with my work. And, and and like Scott said, like I am a huge consumer of television and film TV shows. So that's why I'm always so kind of surprised when people haven't seen stuff, because I'm like, wait, you haven't seen House of Cards? <laughs> like, you haven't seen this? Cause I, but I can burn through things as oh, I'm drawing, because yeah. I'm kind of picking up. Although, if there's something that's really visually interesting, like Hannibal, for example, the TV show, like that would make me stop and have to just stare at what they're doing, because visually it was so rich. But, but there are certain directors like Tony Scott and Ridley Scott who whose work I, I can just absorb like on a, like well, Ridley is an artist too, so he's he you know you they look both at, well, yeah, they exactly. both used to, they both drew like they would right. do storyboards and for me like I Tony Scott I don't know how many people here are familiar with Tony Scott's work Ridley is more you know you know him from from Aliens and Prometheus and The Martian but they're brothers and Tony Scott was the more prolific of the two he was like a machine he he's done Top Gun. Beverly Hills Cop 2, Spy Game, um, The Fan, so many different movies that if you look at his films, like he was like the first person like that I really followed who when he unfortunately killed himself, I was really bummed because I'm like, 
no more Tony Scott films. Because when his films would come out, if you look at his films, like they are like compositions on every frame. Whereas Ridley, it's the same, but not as stylized. There are some films of Ridley Scott that I could say, okay, I'm looking at this, but I'm not quite sure that that's a Ridley Scott film, you know, for at least a couple of scenes or whatever, or frames. Whereas Tony Scott, you look at his films, man, every freaking frame is like a painting, you know. There's a big distinction between foreground, middle ground, dark background, uses shadows, you know. It's just, just to me, that's like a, just a food for the, my creative soul. And by the way, every, you and I definitely think the same way because, you know, as we're trying to tell visual stories, and so we're always learning and absorbing other visual storytellers' work. So that's how we get better, that's how you analyze, that's how you figure out how things work and how things don't work. Uh, actually, yeah, my nephew is actually uh, working on a TV show down south, and he came to me to study storytelling, uh, visual storytelling. And then I checked out the TV show he was working on, and I hated to say it, but it's like they were horrible at dealing with visual depth, like foreground, middle ground, background, you know. Yeah, very flat looking. You know, even nighttime scenes did, had no drama and dimension, and it's like. Wait, these guys who are professionals that aren't doing their jobs, but we're one of the advantages we have is when you get to work at home, you're absorbing this stuff all the time. And I really treat it as like this constant, again, school. I get to, I get to be in school with my different pencilers. I get to be school in school with my writers. I get to be in school with the um, entertainment media I absorb every day. Um, and it just, all the, I use as tools to make my work better if possible. Yeah. Can I ask about a life of an artist type questions? Um, Very boring. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it, sound, it, it sounds solitary, but um, a couple of my friends have had to deal with issues uh, medically, like they've really blown out their wrists from uh, the amount of hours that they've spent drawing and you know, not everybody has a day job, but a lot of people still have to have day jobs and stuff. So, uh, how do you keep healthy enough to keep working? Well, you know, I am, 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 am an avid bike rider. So, whenever I can get the chance, I will ride my bike. Because I live in, uh, I'm a native New Yorker, but I live in the Washington, D.C. area. And be able to ride my bike around the White House, the Capitol building really never gets old. And it, to me, it's like the cheapest form of therapy. So, <laughs> You just clear your head with like the, you know, the wind going through your face and stuff. So I'll try to at least bike or at least go to the gym, you know, like fairly often because we, we just sit. Like I remember back in the 90s, I was at a convention at the New York Comic Con. I went to the New York Comic Con and I saw one of my favorite artists who draws some of those beautiful, anatomically perfect looking people. And he was like 300 pounds. He was like, wow. And I was like, <laughs> I, and when I saw him, I was just, and I wasn't judging, I was just like, okay, I gotta, I gotta make sure I exercise, because we sit on our asses all day. Exactly. So yeah, I try to exercise. Uh, one of my drawbacks is I literally, sometimes I'll be at the drawing table 12, 14 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week. And uh, so, but I, fortunately I have, I think a very light touch. So I've <laughs> never had problems with my wrists or my hands. Though I know some artists who like break pencils, you know, they press down so hard and they engrave everything. I kind of like to glide and use my whole arm and things like that. Another thing is I actually, uh, my mother is a painter, so she always, my whole life, I thought, oh, artists are supposed to draw and paint standing up because they're at, you're at an easel and you stand. And that's actually a much, much better way to do art because you're using your whole body, you're getting exercise, you're balanced, you're standing, you're not sitting on your butt all day. Uh, however, it's kind of hard to ink standing up. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So what I, I did, and Dave has seen my studio, so um, I actually tried to approximate that as much as I could. I actually use a kneeling stool that... Uh, actually doesn't have a back on the chair. It has me kneeling down. It's an art ergonomic, so it's designed to be very flexible, move around a lot. It keeps your back in a really good position. And I also have my easel at as high of an angle as I can and still ink. Uh, because I don't want to be bent over and hunched like this. I want to be drawing like this. And this is also better for your eye, so eye line to see the proper proportions of your drawings. 
so I really try to keep my easel as high up as I can, and I use the ergonomic chair, and that actually makes me able to survive 14-hour drawing days with no difficulty. Wow, so that, that really works for kneeling? Uh, absolutely, yes. I've always thought about that. It, it's, well, it's for me, it's been a lifesaver. Because I, I've, uh, I model at, uh, at the Kubert School and, and other art schools, and, and modeling is hard work too. <laughs> it's yeah. very physical work. Yes. Um, but I get to pick up a lot of this information, like you're saying, and um, especially first-year students, they need to be taught to hold their pencil differently <laughs> yeah. because you're used to holding it like you write a letter right. and you yes. take notes in school, and that's not how you hold it when you draw. And to get them to draw from their shoulder exactly. instead yeah. is a very different experience. And like you describing the angle of your table, um, you you don't realize how you're starting to squish your figures. If you're drawing <laughs> flat, even like when we're at a show like this and yeah. we're on a flat surface, it distorts your drawing. Yeah. You can't help it, but your yeah. brain automatically adjusts. And just remember, it's, you know, if something's going to go hanging up on a wall or somebody's going to be holding it to read it, they are looking at it from a whole different angle. And, um, you know, so. That's why, that's actually what I, I do that, although I'm sure like if Scott were to look at my posture, he'd be like, oh my God. Because I mean, sometimes I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> But what I do is when I finish the page, I have a bulletin board that I tack all my pages up. Oh, cool. So as I go, like they're sort of up there in my eye line, and I'm, sometimes I see like, oh my god, that's off. Or you know, a lot of times I'd use it for continuity, but also to spot mistakes. That and that's one of the really tough things because we, especially if you're penciling and inking your own work, yeah. it's hard not to emphasize your own mistakes instead of catching your mistakes. So stepping back, removing yourself from a little, a little bit, either looking from a distance or even looking at artwork the next day, it's a lot easier to spot the things you didn't catch when you were right in the moment at the time. So that's a really smart. Yeah, and then sometimes where I'll say, okay, shit, I got to fix that, and then I'll go back and I'll tell my colorist. Hey, listen, man. I'm sorry, but I made a correction. <laughs> you know, I try not to do that, like you know, too far out. But I'll say, hey, man, I, I, I made an edit to panel one or two, and they're like, oh, no, no problem, no problem. But you know, that's when you see it. And um, how have you managed? Your careers are amazing so far. So, how do you get through a dry spell, or have you ever not really had to have that problem? Uh, I, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you. Uh, I'll let Scott go first. I mean, when you hear, I worked on Spider-Man for 17 years, it's like, that's well, 17 years of paychecks. Yeah, well, I, what, well I, I actually, you know, when I was in art school, I, I, you wouldn't know from the way I'm at, but I was actually very shy and quiet, and I didn't know how to sell my stuff. And to me, comics was kind of like this godsend, because like, wait, if you get on a monthly title, you get a paycheck every month, you know, you know what you're doing next month, which, in the world of illustration, that's a really tough thing. You don't have that consistency. And, you know, knock on wood, I've been extremely fortunate that once I got into comics, I have never been out of work, ever. Uh, like, for me, being out of work is, oh, I'm down to like one book this month or this week. And, uh, and my wife always, I, I shouldn't say this because a lot of people have a lot of trouble finding regular work, but, um, Frequently, I, I've, I've, had, I've got such a good, solid reputation, and you know, I've got you know, 30 years of history, and I've worked with some of the best artists in the world, and so that reputation kind of carries with you, and it's usually for me a, a thing of, oh, I'll call up an editor and say I'm available, and you know, I'm, you know, for it's weird that even with my level of success. If three days go by and I haven't heard something yet, I start just like freaking out. Oh, I don't have a new assignment yet. Um, frequently, that it happens faster than that. But sometimes you will have a gap of it's like, oh, just nothing comes in for a week. Or even sometimes I'm working on four different assignments and nothing's coming from my pencilers. I'm like just twiddling my thumbs because like okay, and then so then I'm doing commissions or other projects or whatever, or doing my own paintings and stuff, but. Uh, there are there are small dry spells, but overall I've been extremely fortunate that I've pretty much actually for almost the past thirty years uh, it's really rare for a month to go by without something of mine on the stands. So. And I think that you know you know Scott's really in a very nice position, but of course it's rare. <laughs> it, it's rare because but, but it's something that you also worked hard for because you're incredible. <coughs> 
And you're, you're, you're probably fast, I don't know how fast you are. I'm considered one of the fastest anchors See, in the business. So be, yeah. between being dependable and fast and, and good, you know, Scott has, has a reputation, and by working with top pencilers, they, they'll, they'll be like, listen, I, got, I want Scott on my thing. Exactly. So he also yeah, has I, advocates for it. A lot him. of my work is, yeah, I literally have people asking for me on a regular basis, yeah. and I've been fortunate enough to please enough pencil, and this is one of the, if you're a bad inker, you're not gonna get people asking for you. Yep. You know, they're not going to request you. They're gonna say, oh no, I gotta work with this guy, you know? Uh, as opposed to if you're good at your job, then there you. I'm fortunate enough that I usually have more people asking for me than I can even work with. So that means I get to have that luxury to turn down projects, which is rare. Um, and, what's great, and what's also great about Scott's position is that if you have the momentum of you're good, you're fast, you're dependable, you have people asking you to do work, that can kind of pull you through different editorials changes. Oh, I've so, gone through some. So, so editors that might not have any clue what good inking is, they know that well, Scott, Scott, this rep, and people want to work with them, so that'll carry him through. You know, like the sort of I, I'm working with a lame editor who might not know his ass from his elbow with regard to art. Now, for me, I've definitely had dry spells, and to me, it showed me from an early age that, or early point on in my career, that I need to diversify. And you can't ever get comfy with one company because <laughs> they will like 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 being in a, either yeah, a marriage. There's no such thing as, or, as you know. eventually they'll take you for granted. So it's always good to kind of spread yourself by bouncing by working. If you're working with Marvel, do something for DC. If you're working for DC, do something for Marvel. Because eventually, like you know, the more people that you work for, then they'll, they'll you're kind of in demand. But also, it's great to sort of work outside of the industry, you know, because there was at a point there was a there was a point where. I said, okay, I'm really not getting a lot of work, and I was, I had um, a friend had suggested you ought to do an art book. And I was like, that's a really good idea, and so I reached out to a friend of mine who was uh, in publishing. I said, what, what would you think about me pitching an art book based on my style? She loved it, and I, so I took time off from comics and did this art book, and then that book introduced me to a whole other audience, and that book is now published around the world in different languages. So it's a whole lot of people that have seen my work that hadn't seen it before. And so also by having a website and promoting yourself and constantly putting work on your website, like that's pretty much, that's how Robert Kirkman found me. He reached out to me and said, hey, uh, I'm a big fan of your work. I'd love to work with you on a new project. It doesn't involve zombies, but it's something new. <laughs> and I was like, cool. And so, so, so now between working between my art book, being you know, published in different languages, working on DVDs, which is published in different languages, a whole great, a whole big uh, swath of people know my work now, and so I'm in a position now where I turn down work, which you know I don't want to jinx myself because there's a part of me that's like, well, I want to turn it down. Yeah, seriously, in, just in, as illustrators, you're always afraid of that time where you get the next dry spell, you know. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, so, it, so yeah, <laughs> saying no is a really tough thing to do yeah. because you're always like, wait, if I say no now, yeah. well, remember that, and never ask me again. I'm greedy so. and I want to hold as much money as possible, but then I'm like, you know, I don't want to burn somebody. Well, and you also no. you also are only as good as your last project. Yeah. So if if somebody like. Sometimes I have to say no because if I can't do my best work, all that matters is what shows up on the printed page. You know, five years from now, an editor is not going to say, "Oh yeah, I really uh, hated your stuff, but you saved my butt in deadlines." They're like, "No," they're going to say, "I didn't like your work," you know, and that's what counts. So you have to be the judge of that. And if you have to turn down work to, do, to in order to make sure your all your work is quality that's much preferred. So your quality is your choice and your decision, and so it always has to be the artist, uh, you know, our own judgment. We have to say, nope, I can't do it. I, yeah, I'd rather say, no, I, and actually my editors love it when I say, oh, I'm, I'm booked up right now, I can't handle this book, you know, find somebody else to fill in for me, or find, and they're like, Thanks for warning us in advance. We love you, you know, and they'll actually work with me again more because they know that I'm truthful, I'm honest, I talk to them, professional. I can, I'm professional, and that's what it's all about. It's about yeah. So being perfect. This is besides <laughs> being a really cool thing to do to draw for a living. It's still a job. It's still a profession, and it still has requirements that any real profession should have. 
Well, as John mentioned, his art book and uh, it's you have the how-to basically. So it's uh, it's like an instruction manual and a textbook, yeah. and uh, you know, and of course Scott has his own school. So uh, how has teaching actually influenced your work as your own, you know, going into art instead? Like has teaching because it was something when I when I was in school, one of my teachers said. Um, that she learned more from teaching than as a student. Yeah, I, I actually was amazed because I, you, you always hear this maxim that it's like, oh, if you can't do, you teach, right? But in art, I actually don't think that's the case at all because I think I actually get to be, I'm as a teacher, I learn stuff from my students by communicating them to, with them what's important. It makes me focus more on what's important. So it actually makes me better in a lot of ways and even like one of the luxuries I have is like I'm mostly known as an inker, not as a penciler, though I have always penciled and I paint and things like that. But when I'm in class, I'm drawing in front of my class all the time. And even my wife knows, like, Scott, you're so much better and more confident now because you're drawing every, you know, after you do so many classes of artistic anatomy, you don't even have to think about what muscle goes where anymore. It's just like, you know, yeah, you've drawn it hundreds of times, but you're also explaining it and showing how it works and twists and things like that. So it engraves it in my head at the same time as I'm putting it into the kid's head. So I love being a teacher, and I think it really absolutely makes me a better artist. Um, yeah, I think I just I just love sharing my experience with aspiring artists. You know, so anytime I can give lectures or speak in classes, I, I'm happy to as long as I can schedule it in. Because to me, like when, when I was when I was growing up, I always I benefited from having really good mentors. Like I, because I'm a native New Yorker, and I had taken a free a friend of mine hit me to this free nonprofit uh, school in Harlem called the Children's Art Carnival, and they would have professionals come in there like every Saturday and teach free classes, and they were free. And that's where I met um, two mentors of mine that I consider. Uh, one's name was Michael Davis, and the other one was Gil Ashby. And Gil was strictly about drawing. He's like, you have to be able to draw. Foundation, everything, blah, blah, blah. Davis was, this is a business. It's a hustle. And it was a very interesting yin and yang way of approaching this business. And so that gave me an edge getting into the industry ahead of other uh, um, friends of mine who were in school, art school, because art school really doesn't teach you how to do, uh, they don't teach you how to be a businessman. To be honest. No, not at all. At all. Yeah. So, so, when, so anytime I, I can, you know, talk or share some of my knowledge with, you know, aspiring artists or whatever, I'm happy to do it. So um, we're getting the cue to wrap up. So um, where can people find you and follow your work and, you know, if they have any questions or something, uh, you know, track you down? Uh, for me, you can uh, find me at the artsandfashioninstitute.com or AFI Art School. Uh, dot com. Uh, I teach regular classes and I also uh, do uh, uh, travel teaching, so I teach at other schools and colleges, um, but that's probably the best place to do. And you can find my artwork at theartistchoice.com, which is also here where I sell my originals, like this stuff. Uh, you can find me at seanmartinbro.com uh, on Facebook. I rarely tweet. Uh, so horrible <laughs> tweeting. I mean, I respect the book, but you've been doing that. I find it so tedious. Um, and yeah, so you, you can also pick up my art book, How to Draw Noir Comics, The Art and Technique of Visual Storytelling, published by Random House, which is pretty cool. It's like, it's, uh, it's multiple printings, and it's just really how I got it. It's not going to teach you how to draw elbows and arms and legs, <laughs> but just really how to apply, how, I, I let you in on how I tell a story and use shadow and light to create interesting images and how I approach storytelling, and how I got into the business as well. So do we have last minute questions before they boot us? Well, I invite you all to come up and look at these originals from Scott. Right, yeah. These are insane. <laughs> and the details. Yes, are it's, especially since we have a small space here. <laughs> so you can come up and look at some of the, you know, the work I've got here. Oh, actually, one thing I didn't mention very briefly is that uh, a lot of time nowadays people do digital inking. Uh, we also do what's called blue line inking, where we get uh, digital scan of the pencil artwork and turn it into the inks, which is what I did with, where is it? So this was actually over from Blue Lines, and then sometimes I still work over the original pencils over actual pencil drawings by the artist, which I still prefer the pencils, but Blue Lines are a necessity in today's you know, fast-moving market. 
and late deadline market. Oh, definitely. And um, Sean, do you have a booth? Here? No, no, I just came to say hello to the old Okay, people, so. Scott definitely has a booth, yes, so I have a you can always check out his Yes, his work. please stop by if you want to, so I have more artwork over there, and you can just say hello. All right. Cool, thanks guys. Thanks, guys. Awesome. So again, everyone, thank you for listening to the Inking Comics panel that was presented at New Jersey Comic Expo. And uh, don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. Uh, of course, there's a Facebook page, but you know how Facebook is as far as not really showing you all of the information and all of the things that you like. But yes, there is definitely a Facebook page and everything else is at amberunmasked.com. Please support the show and my work. If you can go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked because it has helped tremendously. And, um, if you have any questions about writing, um, whether it's comics or novels or short stories, uh, let me know. Because if I cannot answer the question, since I am far from an expert, uh, I will try to direct you to people who definitely can help you. Uh, as far as inking goes, um, I know some really great people involved in inking comics. So uh, if you have further questions that were not addressed during this panel, uh, again, reach out to me. Twitter is pretty easy. And um, if not, you can leave comments here and I will tell you, you know, I'll try to find people's actual links for, you know, for you to follow up with other professionals that I know who are really amazing in the comic business. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.